This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Hi, everybody. I hope everybody's doing well today. At least uh, the election results mean we did not vote for a fascist, white supremacist. <laughs> Right. <laughs> we have a lot of work ahead of us, but we can celebrate for the moment that at the very least, America did not vote for a fascist white supremacist. Um, so we are uh, we have so much to talk about in this elections 2020 class about the elections, but um, we are we have such a huge surprise for you today. Um, we are very honored to have with us Alicia Garza, the founder of Black Lives Matter or co-founder, excuse me, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and author of the new book, The Purpose of Power. Um, and we're going to hear from her about her book and talk to her about the implications of the elections uh, till 11 o'clock. Um, and then unfortunately, both she and I need to go. <laughs> and then um, President Cohen might take it from there. But um, we are so thrilled. And not only do we have Alicia with us, but we she also asked that we uh, by books in on in lieu of honorarium, and so we are going to be providing books to all her book to every single person in this class for free. Um, we're we're going to talk to you about how we're going to get it out to you. But thank you, Alicia. I feel like Oprah today, um, <laughs> <laughs> announcing all these special surprises for you. So I know she doesn't need any introduction, but for the five of you that may not know who she is, I'm just going to read a quick bio and thank you so much for Alicia for, Alicia for joining us. Um, so Alicia is an author, political strategist, organizer, loves cheeseburgers, um, also a friend of mine. Thank you for being here. Um, she founded the Black Futures Lab to make Black communities powerful in politics. In 2018, the Black Futures Lab conducted the Black Census Project, the largest survey of Black communities in over 50, 150 years. Um, she is the creator of Black Lives Matter, the hashtag, and also the Black Lives Matter Global Network, an international organizing project to end state violence and oppression against Black people. The Black Lives Matter Global Network now has 40 chapters in four countries. She also serves as the Strategy and Partnerships Director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and she's the co-founder of Supermajority, a new home for women's activism. Um, she has become such a big voice in media. She's been featured in Time and MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times. Um, she's been named Times one of Time's 100 Most Influential People in the World. Um, in fact, she was on the cover of that issue, September 2020. She was named Times 100, one of Times 100 Women of the Year in March 2020. Um, Fortune's 40 under 40, and we can go on and on. She's received the Sydney Peace Prize, Be the Ad, Ad Week Beacon Award, Glamour's Women of the Year Award, Marie Claire's New Guard Award, and was recently honored as the Community Change Agent at BET's Black Girls Rock Awards. Alicia's first book, The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart, just came out on October 20th, 2020 with One World, which is Penguin Random House. Um, and she also has a podcast, which I highly encourage you to listen to, Lady Don't Take No. So we are so happy to have you, Alicia. Thank you for joining us on this very special day following this incredible election. 
Well, thank you for having me. And it's so, so good to be here with y'all. Thank you, Saru, for such a kind um, and long introduction. <laughs> but also thank you for inviting me to class. Um, I know we've been trying to do this for a while and I just always appreciate the invitation. So thank you for that. And I'm excited to get into it with y'all today. Um, yeah, let's do it. So we were hoping maybe you could first talk to us about your book and kind of how you're seeing the world right now. And then I thought I'd ask you a couple of questions about the elections and your thoughts on them. But yeah. why don't we start with your book since um, everybody's getting a copy. Yes, <laughs> and thank you for the book by. Um, so I just want to start off by saying, whew, man, I, I really, with all of the deep work that we need to do on this democracy, um, what's left of it. Um, I can say that I join millions and millions of people around the world who are taking deeper breaths um, today. And I want to start off that way because I think um, what my book is trying to do is to talk with us a little bit about how to be present in this moment and how to fulfill our generation's mission and how to decide and determine what that is. And I actually start the book off by um, using a quote, a quote from Franz Fanon, which says exactly that. Every generation, um, I'm paraphrasing right now, but every generation basically has a mission and we can choose to fulfill it or betray it. And I think that, um, you know, this political moment that we're in right now brings that mission into clearer focus and um, it outlines exactly what the hard work is moving forward. Um, so, you know, I, I thought that when I started writing this book, it was going to be like a book about BLM, right? And it was like, okay, so many people ask all the same questions about BLM that we might as well just like write it down so we can move on to the next thing. <laughs> And actually, um, when I started writing this book, that's not what that's not what emerged. Um, I really have felt that I've been an organizer now for almost 20 years. You know, I've got like new grays from the pandemic, um, but I've been in this work for a long time. And I think the last seven years of BLM have shown me a lot of where our strengths are and a lot of where our gaps are. And so instead of writing a book about BLM, whose story I think is still unfolding, um, instead, this book is really about how to build the kinds of social movements that we need for this moment and um, how we can get closer to um, fulfilling the mission that has been bestowed upon us. And um, I start off this, this book with a lot of stories about grounding where I come from. And I think as we're all trying to figure out what our role is in social change, um, it's important for us to place ourselves in context as opposed to look at what's happening right now um, as an observer, right? Um, we have too many, <laughs> I'm just going to be really blunt about this. 
we have too many armchair revolutionaries. <laughs> and basically, um, what I mean by that is folks who um, observe, right, and have opinions, um, but really are not engaged in the hard work of what it means to bring people together and achieve a series of goals together um, across difference and the messiness of that, um, the intricacy and the layers of that. And I think as a result of not having enough people actually in the work, we get a lot of distortions about what the work is and what it isn't. We get a lot of distortions about how change happens and how it doesn't. Um, and we get a lot of distortions about what we have control over and what we don't. And so, you know, starting off this book, really placing myself in context is a method that I want all of us to do. And, um, you know, I'm asking us through doing it myself to reflect on, you know, what is shaping how we understand how the world works? Who shaped that for us? Um, how do we come into this on, on which ends of spectrums, right? Do we come into um, this work and into our understanding of how the world works? Um, in the second part of the book, I really spend time going under the hood in terms of how change happens. And I tell a couple of stories. One is rooted in 10 years of work that I did in a community called Bayview Hunters Point, which is in the Southeast section of San Francisco. It's one of the largest black communities remaining um, in the city. And um, it's really where I learned, um, it's where I learned a lot about organizing and campaigns and change. And it's where I myself was deeply changed. Um, I came into that work with a lot of um, ideas, right, about how change happened, about who we need to build alliances with, right, about what those alliances need to look like and on what basis they are formed. And I really um, had my mind blown in terms of, you know, having to pull things together that were not what I imagined they would be but also how breaking out of some of these boxes um, really actually helped us advance farther than I think we would have gone otherwise. I also talk a little bit about the origin story of BLM. I talk a little bit about um, Ferguson and how um, some things unfolded there. But in the Ferguson story, I don't tell the story of movement there um, because that is for folks in Ferguson to do. And I'm deeply hoping that, you know, more organizers write, <laughs> but in particular, I'm deeply hoping that more organizers from St. Louis will actually get the opportunity to kind of write and tell their story on their own terms. What I did write about in relationship to Ferguson, though, was um, what it takes to galvanize people towards change and um, what happens when people begin to see themselves as heroes in their own stories, as opposed to waiting for, you know, a Superman <laughs> to descend on a community. But I also talked a little bit about some of the paradigms that got shifted um, through the work that folks did in Ferguson um, during the early days of the uprising that resulted um, from the murder of Michael Brown. And then finally, in the book, I talk a lot about some of the lessons that I've learned and am unlearning um, about what it takes to create change. Um, I talk a lot about um, some of the barriers for people who um, are being left out and left behind 
to become um, social change agents. I offer some things that I think we need to interrogate about how our movements currently work. Um, one of which has to do with um, our relationship to elections and electoral politics um, and power, right? Um, and I end the book by talking a little bit about what our charge is right now. And, you know, I, I end the book with a story about um, my mother. And, you know, this book almost didn't get finished, honestly. And for anybody who's ever written a book, sorry, I think you've written multiple books. <laughs> it's the worst. It is the worst. It's the worst. You have a great idea. You're like, I'm going to write, I'm going to write, write, write. And there's going to be pages flying everywhere. That's not how this works. And, you know, you're in some change after I'm getting a book deal. I was still very far away from a first draft and my mom died. I'm um, right in the middle. And I didn't think this book was going to get finished um, because of that. I was already very behind. And then um, my whole entire world changed. And um, some of what I reflected on is um, some of the things I learned from her process of dying. And um, one of the questions that I want to offer us um, as we kind of move into discussion is that we're in a moment where there are things that are dying and they need to. Um, it is past time for them to kind of go into the ether. And we have a question in front of us about kind of what is what do we need to provide hospice care for, right? The whole purpose of hospice care is um, that you are not going to be resuscitated if something happens, right? It's like the whole purpose is to like die with dignity, but literally to die. Um, so what are we providing hospice care for in this moment? And then of course, there are things that need to be born. And we have a question in front of us about what we are providing prenatal care for. And I think if we are going to, the way for us to get through this next period is to really be paying attention to how not to resuscitate things that need to go and how to really deeply invest in um, not just our vision, but the building of what institutions and vehicles and cultural messages and trends um, and policies, right? Like what are the things that we need to bring into being right now in order to move to the next phase of history. So that's the book. I hope you really, really enjoy it. Um, and let's talk about all the things. <laughs> awesome. Um, so it'd be great to dive just because this is two days after we heard the announcement. It'd be great to dive a little bit more into kind of the relationship between social movement and elections and electoral politics. Maybe let's start with um, kind of a very softball, but how do you see, obviously BLM and Movement for Black Lives shaped this election. So how do you see that, you know, and then what do you see as the trajectory, you know, post-election for its ongoing impact on the new administration? Mm. Um, well, I think to answer that question, um, I have to talk a little bit about power. And the title of the book is The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. And I wanted to center this conversation about power because I think it actually helps us clarify a whole bunch of things. <laughs> um, you know, I spend some time in the book really defining what I think power is and what I think power isn't. 
And I think in relationship to BLM and the movement for Black lives, one of the core struggles over the last decade really has been that we all have really different ideas of what power looks like, what it is and what it ain't. And I think the first time around um, in 2016, when we were kind of catapulted right into um, a spotlight that we were not prepared for onto a stage that we'd never been on um, with an ambivalence about electoral politics and electoral organizing and what it was going to take to create the kinds of conditions to build the kind of power we need to make the changes that we wanna see made. And as a result, I think lots of people tuned out to what was actually a very pivotal moment in our country. Um, and you know, it was weird because on the one hand, and I talk about this in the book, um, on the one hand, we were getting used as a political football um, candidates wouldn't even talk about BLM or they had a really hard time saying Black Lives Matter. Um, you all might remember the Netroots. There was a Netroots conference, which is like a gathering of um, Democrats, right? Progressive to liberal. Um, and there was a whole range of candidates there. It was like Bernie Sanders, Martin O'Malley out of, um, out of Maryland. Uh, I don't think Hillary Clinton made it there that time around. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, interestingly, no candidate could actually just say Black Lives Matter without qualifying it in some weird way. Um, Bernie Sanders had a really hard time saying it. And he was like, of course, I marched with Dr. King. Like, that's just like a stupid question, right? It was also the day that, um, if I remember correctly, it was the day that Sandra Bland was found hung in her jail cell after being um, pulled over in a traffic stop. And then we don't know what happened in between that and her being found hanging in a jail cell in, in Waller County, Texas. Um, Martin O'Malley in response said, black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter, right? That's where we were in 2016. On top of that, um, we had a, a this president who was actually testing um, his messages around the future that he imagines for this country, but also he was very much testing messages around um, uh, how to understand who to blame for the problems that people are facing. And um, you all will remember that, you know, that year in particular, I think it was in August, there were, um, two major, major um, events. One in Dallas, Texas, where there was an ambush um, of, of Dallas police officers. Uh, and the other was in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, where there was also a, a, the murder of uh, one or two police officers. And Donald Trump did what Donald Trump does. He immediately rushed to kind of blame this, right, on Black Lives Matter and all the unrest and the climate, he said, that had been um, created by questioning um, the, the right of police officers to murder with impunity. Um, and I think in that moment, because there was so much swirling, because this wasn't a platform that we were used to, we made a lot of mistakes. Um, I feel really good about the fact that BLM did not endorse a presidential candidate. Um, frankly, 
nobody was offering <laughs> really anything of substance. And so it was less important to me that BLM or the Movement for Black Lives ever endorsed a presidential candidate. More important to me that we saw elections and electoral organizing as a stage, not the stage, but a stage upon which to build power. I think moving into this election cycle, we saw a lot of shifts, right? Um, folks certainly still, I think, you know, struggled around this presidential cycle, but definitely got in the game and got clear about who we're doing this for, right? I think we were able to not get caught up in par party politics, but also to change the conversation about what the core agenda needed to be. Um, I will say that also this year, at least a few months ago, right? When the George Floyd and Maude Arbery, right? There was a lot of protests that, that exploded all over this country and all over the world. And I think BLM saw its highest approval levels, right? In the mainstream polls, right? Before in 2016, it was like, you know, those little graphs that go outward. Okay. We were like on the toxic side. It was like, don't ever talk about this if you ever want to win an election. Um, this time around, right? We were on the posi posi side. It was something like 87% of people who were polled supported Black Lives Matter. Of course, that started to dip again when Donald Trump started to do his thing around rioting and looting and socialism and all the big, bad boogeymen that they create with little substance. I can tell you right now, there is little chance at this very moment that this country is going to become socialist. I can just be very clear with you. There is very little chance, and I hate to break anybody's heart right now, but we're not there. Um, and so, but if you are to talk to um, particularly a lot of white Americans in this country, they will tell you that they believe that rioting and looting is out of control. They will tell you that they believe that there is a planned socialist takeover of this country and that it is imminent. And so that is why they need to be armed. And that is why they need to call on their patriotism and fight back. Last thing I want to say about this is... Um, you know, my friend Heather McGee um, is coming out with a book. Uh, I think it's coming out in January. And I do hope you'll have her. It's called The Sum of Us. And it talks about racism and the weaponizing of race and how that actually hurts white folks. In this election cycle, we saw um, white voters predominantly um, land on the side of Donald Trump after four years of all kinds of topsy-turviness. We've gotten Muslim bans. We've had babies and still have babies in cages, um, family separation. Um, you know, we still have, right? Um, we're still in a pandemic. We're almost a, a, a year in. Um, no, no relief yet in sight. Um, we are at the at the brink of an economic depression, right? Um, and of course the climate crisis is deepening all around us. Um, four years of this, right? Four years of this and still the majority of um, white folks who voted in this last election cycle voted for Donald Trump. And some of this has to do with the story that has been very successful over at least the last decade about um, white folks feeling like the structures and the systems that we are building together 
are anti-white. Even though there is like zero evidence of that, right? It is a story that is deeply shaping policy and government in this moment. And it is a story that activated the Tea Party movement. It is a story that brought us the rise of an authoritarian. And frankly, it's a story that can bring us back an authoritarian in four years if we're not really smart about um, how we're building movement and how we're creating change. Um, So I talk about this in the book, the relationship between culture and policy. Um, And I talk about kind of the ways in which race, right, often gets weaponized in order to mobilize white resentment, which often gives us, right, the most um, conservative politics. And that is actually bad for a lot of us. Doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat, those things kind of don't matter anymore. Where we are right now politically, (coughs) excuse me, I think is um, it's far beyond political parties, Actually, it is about reshaping the structure of government and the process of governance and the distribution of power. Um, So if movements are about putting more power into the hands of more people, how do we understand um, uh, the role of elections in helping us do that? But also, how do we understand some of the barriers um, that are getting in our way? It was a long answer, but I had to get it all in there. <laughs> no, that's great. I have one more question, and I do want to open it up because <clears throat> I know we have limited time. Um, it, I don't know about you, but it was I had mixed emotions this weekend because yep. um, for all the reasons you said, and it took seconds, seconds for the commentators and the Democratic Party to say, oh, you see, the lesson of the election is we got to move to the center, you know, party, he's the president for all of us, Um, you know, don't talk about, this is what, defund the police, hurt us, can't talk about socialized medicine, hurt us. And meanwhile, it was the freaking communities of color and the organizers in Phoenix and Philadelphia and Atlanta who delivered the election and um, and so if you're the president of all of us, I mean, in my mind, that means walking away from those communities and the promises made to them. Mm-hmm. And so I I think, you know, it's going to be a fight. It is going to be such a fight with the Democrats now mm-hmm. to get them to hold on to the promises they made, which is the only reason so many people voted for the first time this time is they felt some new potential for something different. So how are you? I mean, is there anything from the book that you feel like you'd like to share in terms of thinking about how we fight our people, you know, this now going forward. Yep. 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 Sure. I mean, one thing is, um, (laughs) this is to be expected. And some of it is that we haven't actually caught up to what is the new story of now. And, um, the problem with the Democratic Party, in my opinion, is it's still telling a story from like the 1980s and the 1990s. It is not a story of 2020. Um, It is not a story of a country and a globe ravaged by a pandemic. It is not a story of a of a country that is facing literally like pending economic doom. (laughs) I'm not trying to be like facetious here. I mean, shit is bad. And, um, you know, it's, it's what we can expect in the sense that the Democratic Party is a big tent 
It's a big tent with lots of different factions. Um, there is not, it, there's not a monolith here. But the problem is the strategy of the party um, really is absent in this moment. I'll just be honest, like the strategy has been defeat Donald Trump and get more Democrats elected, but it's becoming less and less clear what Democrats are about. And this cycle, um, I don't think that we saw a mandate for moderate politics. I actually don't find the evidence for that. I think when folks are, and this chatter did, you're right, it literally started probably like the day before um, the, the elections The elections were called. Um, this chatter starts from people being terrified about what's gonna happen in terms of Senate races. And what we did see actually across the country was that um, attack ads were run um, on progressive candidates that tried to link them to defund and link them to socialism and link them to whatever. But that is not a mandate for politics to move more center. It's a mandate to have a better strategy to beat your opposition. You already know what they're going to say, and they've been saying it for a long time. And so what is our message? And I think um, by our, I mean our, bigger than the Democratic Party. I think that the main mandate right now is to, um, as I said, put more power into the hands of more people. And this Democratic Party has four years um, to deliver big for real, regular ass people. For workers, for frontline workers, for restaurant workers, for domestic workers, right? For people who are drowning <laughs> in debt, you know, um, people who have lost um, family members who have themselves contracted COVID. Um, the, the party mandate right now is actually to quit the bullshit and actually deliver on some things. <laughs> and um, that has to be our focus as well. I, I feel like I get goaded into these conversations about, you know, what do you think about Rep Clyburn saying what Rep Clyburn is saying? And I'm like, I don't really care because at the end of the day, um, if you don't deliver, we're all fucked. So <laughs> here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure that um, we work as hard as possible to get control of the Senate. And then we can have a real fight about who gets to um, be catered to in this party. And I think if progressives are successful in actually winning these races, then that conversation becomes null and void. I will say that the challenge here is going to be that even though Black voters men and women are largely being credited for the, the progressive wins, right? Um, and pushing Biden over the top. I think that what we have to remember is that black communities are actually quite conservative. Um, and so um, what happens is that if you have conversations with black voters early and often in between cycles and during cycles, um, black voters show up in the right way. Um, but if you don't, then we don't. And so I think we just have to stay focused on what are we going to deliver for real people who are struggling under the weight of Donald Trump and his authoritarian agenda, but also struggling under the weight of no solutions for a lot of the challenges that we're facing. And how do we make sure that we are amplifying, right? not in terms of parties, but in terms of it's this world or that world, 
like really making it concrete. And I actually feel like if we do our jobs right, um, the loudest voices in the party that are pushing towards moderate politics will actually become irrelevant. From your lips to, to the reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, may it be so. Awesome. I want to introduce uh, my co-professor, Alicia, Professor Cohen. I don't know, Professor Cohen, if you have th anything you want to start with or you want to just open it up to the class. No, I really want to hear from the students. Thank you for being here. Um, Thanks for having and me. And congratulations on the book. I'm just here to facilitate uh, some student questions. So we're going to start here, please. Got it. Let's do it. Hi, love. Thank you. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for this talk. It's truly been uh, very inspiring watching the BLM movement grow to what it's become. And, you know, hearing you speak today as an international student, it's been a real learning opportunity for me. And I just wanted to get your take on, you know, after this election and given the recent developments in American politics, what do you think the future of BLM is within the larger international community? And how do you think the movement will grow or change? It's mm, a great question. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I think that depends on a lot of things. It depends on, um, it depends on a lot of things. Um, including, right, um, what the political arrangements become across the world. So what I know is that we're not the only country, obviously, that is facing um, a shift in politics. And we've seen over the last decade, right, um, a move to the right in some of the countries that I think have really projected the most left politics. Um, and we're also seeing right now we're seeing some some um, back and forth. I mean, I've been following what's happening in Bolivia, right, which is whoa, amazing. Um, I've been following a lot of how people are pushing back against um, a movement that is is global and has become incredibly successful. And I also know that um, politics in the United States are not representative of politics around the world, right? Um, we tend to, um, well, let me not go off on that tangent. I mean, it, the point was to say the US isn't the center of the world. Um, and I, I think that the potential for um, how this movement grows is really dependent upon how we are making connections amongst us, right? So what I know is um, that there are chapters all over, right? Chapters in the UK, there's chapters in Australia, there's chapters um, throughout Latin America, right? There's like, there's an expansion happening, but the question of what is gonna be the future of the BLM movement internationally, I think is really a question of what are the connections and relationships being made um, and there is some work that's being done there, but I think it can and should probably expand. Um, I also think, you know, frankly, um, the backlash that we're seeing here is not going to be contained to this place. So um, in the places where folks have um, really, I think stepped forward around BLM. I do wonder um, 
what the infrastructure looks like to withstand um, what I think those reverberations bring, which is um, right-wing backlash, often vigilante violence, often, um, you know, depending on where you are, right? There's, there's conditions that I think we have to think about. So the connections are not just about um, the proactive vision, right? But it's also about defense. And so I, I, I feel curious about that. I don't know that I have a lot of answers for what I think it will look like, but that's what I think it will take to grow and sustain um, beyond the United States. I hope that was helpful, dear. Terrific. No, I, I think that it's a great question because the BLM really did go global this summer. I think 2016, it washed over the U.S., uh, you know, the, the Ferguson. I mean, I go back to Oscar Grant, but, you know, yeah. Ferguson, um, it, it really swept the nation. And I think starting with George Floyd, it became a global phenomenon in yep. a really powerful way. So, yep. um, yeah, thank you for that. It's a great question. Great answer. Let's go to Daniel. Hi. Um, firstly, I just want to say thank you for being here. It's such an honor. Um, I first heard about uh, you and then um, learning about the Black Lives Matter movement in my ethnic studies class in high school. So it's very um, <laughs> inspiring to have you here right now. Um, so my question is, um, as an organizer, how do you counter um, like the false and harmful rhetoric that um, that Trump like spews towards the Black Lives Matter movement? Um like blaming um, this movement for like rioting and violence and looting. How do you counter that as an organizer? Yeah, um, it's a relevant and real question right now. Um, I think at first, honestly, we did not know how to handle it. And um, like most things, you know, that kind of rhetoric for us is ridiculous, but I think it became clearer post-election just how far and how deep that kind of disinformation has gone, especially with the lack of regulation of social media platforms. Um, you know, these days, lies are able to spread faster than the truth. And it's taken a lot of work um, to get these platforms to be accountable for the information that they allow on their, on their sites. With that being said, I think we've also understood that they're not going to do anything quickly. And so um, one of the things that has been really important to us is making sure that we are present and telling our own stories and not hiding. I mean, literally, I can remember, you know, in 2015, I think I just come back from I don't remember where I was coming back from, but I landed at the airport in San Francisco and my phone was like blowing up, right? You know, you have your phone off and you're on the plane, then you get off, you turn the thing on, it's like, <laughs> and it was because um, there was an officer who was ambushed in Brooklyn. Um, and there was this spin that was happening all of a sudden about how that was Black Lives Matter, right? This was pre-Donald Trump. Um, but I think that our, like our um, tendency in those moments was to just, kind of like clench up, right? Clench up and try to hunker down and like weather the storm. And I think now we're much more cognizant of um, being loud about how wrong that is. Um, and, you know, it's a big lesson, I think, in terms of organizing. As an organizer, I think we're taught to prioritize, right? We're taught to prioritize and direct your energy 
And we're also taught to um, um, not respond to their narratives, but put out our own proactive narrative, which is true and right and fine. Um, but also, I think with these kinds of things, um, they pick a fucking fight and we don't swing back and that's not acceptable. And so this time around, we've been swinging back. And, um, you know, just recently, uh, you know, Patrice and I in particular um, received a credible threat um, and we were visited by the FBI and they were telling us all about this man that they had arrested. They found our names on a list inside his house and, you know, the conventional wisdom around this kind of stuff is to not talk about it. Um, from a security standpoint, people will say, oh, well, you can drive copycats or you can do this, or you can do that. But from a political standpoint, actually, the best thing for you to be do to do about that is to be loud, because if nobody knows, <laughs> right, that you are getting these kinds of threats or if you're being attacked in this kind of way, then people cannot stand up to support you. And so my advice for organizers in this moment would be give people a reason to have your back. Um, there are a lot of people out there who want to figure out what to do. And actually, so many people aren't paying attention to all the things the way that some of us are. So it's been really important to be more vocal. And it's also been really important to um, play that out in public as opposed to um, what I think is not organizing wisdom, but is legal wisdom, which is like, deal with it through the courts, deal with it through the institutions. But what we know about where the courts and our institutions are right now is that they're not functioning correctly. <laughs> or in some cases they are, and they're not set up to actually protect or defend us. So um, that would be my advice. Terrific. Thank you. Let's go to Eric here. Uh, good morning. Uh, morning. First of all, uh, thank you so much. It's an honor to be speaking with you. Thank you for coming to our class session. Uh, my question was uh, how much you see your own goals align with those of the Black Lives Matter movement in general. I'm assuming fairly closely since you co-founded, but my main concern is how or what's the most active or helpful way that we as students can help accomplish those goals? Mm, that's such a good question. Um, so the first thing is, I think, you know, getting involved where you are is so important. Um, I, I get a lot of the like, how can I build a BLM chapter? How can I, you know, whatever? And I'm like, hey, actually, <laughs> there's a lot of places to plug in right now. And the question really is, what is your lane and what can you contribute? Right. So for me, my lane and the thing that I'm focused on more than anything else is building political power that is black and independent and progressive. And that is a feat in and of itself. Trust me and believe. So <clears throat> anything that doesn't fit there is not stuff that I put my time or energy toward. But it doesn't mean that it's not good. It just means I found my lane and this is what I'm giving everything to. I think it would be important for anyone who's trying to figure out how can we help advance BLM's goals, which I think are actually, you know, larger than BLM. I really want to encourage you to figure out what are you good at? Like, what are you really good at? Where can you shine? And then how can you lend your, your shine, right, to something that is in motion? 
And really, if there's a gap, sure, start your own thing. But there's there's a lot of things that actually need hands. Right now, I would say, and I was just talking to my team about this, we are not going to be able to move a lot if we don't change the composition of the Senate. So if you're looking for something to get involved in right now, you can work with us at the Black to the Future Action Fund and help us reach voters in Georgia. You can um, lock it down with an organization in Georgia like Black Voters Matter or Georgia Stand Up or um, New Georgia Project. And I'm happy to send some of these resources to Saru um, and Professor Michael to just help disseminate. But I think that the best way to figure out how to move those agendas forward is to place yourself somewhere for a while and do some work. (laughs) Honestly and truly, place yourself somewhere for a while and do some work. And if it's not the right place for you, that's okay. Jump and try to find something else. But whatever you do, don't stand still. You could move to Georgia and register to vote by December 7th, I think. That's, you know... (laughs) Like all of you just should just move to Atlanta for the next three months. <laughs> really what we need you to do is reach out to people who already live there and um, make sure that those organizations are well-resourced, make sure they have everything they need. And um, what I know is that they've been building a beautiful infrastructure there for close to a damn decade. And that's what got us here. And what I also know in Georgia is that runoffs are not popular and they're not fun and people don't turn out the way they do for presidentials. So all hands on deck. Yeah, we're actually, if people want to, some of the students are involved in my, we're doing a restaurant worker turnout in Georgia. If people want to talk me offline about that as well. That's great. We have time for one more. I think we had one more. Hi, sorry for the background. uh, No, it's all good. But it's such an honor to be in your presence and to hear everything you're saying. Um, um, my question was about, you mentioned um, how you think that our country right now, there's essentially no possibility to move to socialism. Um, and you also talked about how our institutions, like uh, courts, you know, they're not necessarily set up to help people. And I guess my question is, how do you think or do you believe um, like that our country is better off with capitalism? Like, do you feel that racism is inherently embedded in capitalism and there needs to be a change? Or what are, what's your stance on that? Mm. Um, My stance is this, Um, the way that our economy is structured, the way our democracy is structured, the way our society is structured is all been designed Right. And this is not a conspiracy. This is like literally like who built it. (laughs) It has all been designed for white men and it's designed to distribute power and resources. Right. Um, Amongst white men. There have been a lot of shifts to that, but it has been literally chipping away (laughs) ounce by ounce, bit by bit and saying, huh, Well, if this was designed, right, by white dudes for white dudes, what actually could we build instead that could benefit everybody, including white dudes, right? We're not trying to build a thing that like disenfranchises white dudes and, you know, gives power only to um, folks of color, right, or women. 
but we're actually trying to build something different. And so to answer your question in a short way, yes, um, I think capitalism is racialized. I think that it's gendered um, and that's on purpose, right? And actually all of these things um, are designed to, uh, to distribute power and wealth, right? So there's that. Um, do I think that's the way it needs to be? No. <laughs> and um, do I still think that we're pretty far from um, an economy or a democracy that actually is multiracial, right, and multigender, and that values all lives? We are pretty far from that. However, right, um, that's, this is why we fight. This is why we organize. And um, even if we're not going to get to a socialist economy tomorrow, which we're not, the thing that, to be asking ourselves is what are the steps to take to get closer to the kind of economy that can really actually lift all boats? So that's what I think we're focused on now. <clears throat> that's such a great way to end. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you, everything you do. And everybody's excited to have your book. So thank you so much. Thanks, right. Paul. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Good to have you. Thank you so much. Good luck. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. Like, what a pleasure Thanks, to have guys. you. Wonderful. Hey, and thank all of you for your uh, outstanding questions. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everybody, and I am not even going to pretend uh, like you should be fielding those questions to me. For those of you who still have cleft questions left over, that would be wholly inappropriate. Um, I don't intend to belabor this uh, any more than it needs to, but um, I, I, I'm curious. I want to actually get your thoughts about uh, the election just in general. And then I, I want to actually, can I just do that? Can you, I, I would really like, you know, raise your hands and, uh, and just go ahead and like take the opportunity to tell us uh, what you're thinking or feeling or like uh, about, you know, now where we are right now. Um and um, what what you think uh, is at stake in the election, uh, what happened over the weekend, uh, and things like that. And then I, I do have uh, some questions, but I don't want to overburden people with my analytic. I actually am uh, very much interested in hearing yours. So why don't we start with Samantha here? Um, I just clicked on Ratika, but um, let's start with Samantha. Go ahead and uh, unmute yourself. Um, I mean, I'm feeling a lot of different things. I was very excited um, that a, it feels like this is finally all over and everything that's happened over the last four years is hopefully a lot of it in our past, although that we still have a lot to work for in this country. Um, but I'm also honestly kind of worried because I think I, I don't trust president Trump and I don't trust him not trying things. And I don't know how far realistically he can go with trying things and trying to, who knows um, with this election and with the results. And I, I'm honestly just a little worried about it. Um, but I'm so excited that we did elect Biden. I, I, I too am more, it's a, what, 71 more days of Trump in the White House? Uh, yeah. And uh, th I think CNN just reported that he just fired his defense secretary. And that's troubling. 
<laughs> I don't know what that means, but that's definitely, that's just, that's troubling. Um, so, I, I mean, I think we do need to be on our toes and I think like the need for mass mobilization may re-arise. Um, I think Saturday people just spontaneously dancing in the streets was a rather sublime moment. Um, I think, you know, we are entitled if, depending on whose side, of course, you're on, on this, you're entitled to that joy. Um, but I also feel like, um, you know, we need to actually continue to pay attention here, but thank you for that. Let me just, let's keep going here. Um, let's see, uh, Sam. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel kind of the same sense of, of joy and also like worry that most other people have. Like, I'm very glad that Trump is probably going to be gone and that, um, now we have a chance of, if not getting on the right track, but getting on a track that could lead us to the right track. <laughs> um, but I'm also worried about things like, will Trump come back in four years? Will someone like Trump come back in four years? And if so, I, th- I feel like they have a good chance of winning because I'm not convinced that this Biden administration is going to, I mean, have enough strength to carry on a movement beyond just beating Donald Trump, because that's really what this election was about for them. Like, I, I, I read some article somewhere that said that Joe Biden's number one campaign promise was beating Donald Trump. And he didn't have any sort they didn't really have promises beyond just beating Trump. So I feel like that could pose some difficulty in, say, like the midterms or next election. But I'm also interested in just like how our political discourse is going to change, because either go back to normal to what we called normal before Trump or whether it'll carry on some of the things that Trump added to it, because I feel like Trump normalized a lot of things that we weren't used to and that we've moved so far beyond uh, what is typically considered like normal uh, political discourse in this country. So I'm just interested to see if Trump is able to fade out of the political discourse and what that means for how people talk about politics in this country, whether people will retain that sort of Trump, those sort of Trump characteristics or whether we can sort of cool the temperature down a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a, those are good thoughts. These are definitely things uh, to watch for. I mean, we've got to get him out of the white house, like, physically out of the White House uh, eventually. But then what what role Trump will play in the future Republican Party very much remains to be seen. These are uh, important questions. But I, I would also just encourage folks to not um, spiral downwards so quickly to, to quit before the fight actually begins, you know? I mean, like being skeptical, having anxiety, like Jesus, who doesn't have anxiety right now? But don't, don't, don't go looking for, you know, this is what the, you know, uh, uh, this is what the left does. And I don't want to necessarily say who is and who is not the left, but in general, what the left does is because the the vision of the left is that of human emancipation and general liberation of all kind. Uh, and, the, and so on that horizon, there's no such thing as a victory, right? Because any achievement is going to fall short considerably of that ultimate horizon of universal human emancipation. And so one of the things that I have found in my more than 40 some odd years on this planet is that the left does not know how to win things. We're terrible at winning. We're always capable of snatching defeat out of the jaws of clear victory. Uh, and so don't do that. 
Um, <laughs> you know, don't do that. Um, take your wins where you get them. I'm also old enough to know how rare moments like this actually are. They do not come around every four years. They come around every maybe 16 years. And, you know, you all are young and, and you may be uh, inclined to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory, but don't do that. Um, and and don't, don't give up or, or see the failure before uh, success has had an opportunity um, uh, to, to win itself. Uh, saying all of that, I, I agree with you. I have all the same anxieties. I'm going to shut back up again and ask, uh, we're going to have some new folks here. So Graziella, you go ahead and unmute yourself and... and yeah, um, so definitely want to echo everything that everyone else has said about, you know, feeling joy and anxiety. Um, but I think the main thing I'm feeling is just sort of overwhelmed. I I feel like there are so many different sort of losses that occurred over the Trump presidency that I'm not even sure where we go from here. Where do we start? What What should we be pushing for first so that we don't, you know, get muddled with all the different things that we want to accomplish? Good question. Very on message. Let's go to Jose here. Um, hello. I just kind of wanted to mention, like, over this past weekend, I think I had a, a bit of an epiphany. And I realized, like, between everything I learned in this class and the election, I, I realized that a lot of times I think people have the idea that democracy is supposed to work on its own. And I really realized the power of organizing and uh, mobilizing and um, how, it's, how essential that really is. And I think it really is up to the people and, and if we want democracy and it's really not so much looking outward, but I think we should really be looking inward and you know, really trying to do what we can. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's very on point. All right, so I think this is uh, Raisa. Hi, yeah, uh, like you said, but I was um, kind of wondering what would we do because we're probably mm. a split Senate uh, legislature and we're not getting the courts. What exactly should Biden focus on? Because like domestically, we need a lot of work, but how are we supposed to get that done with such a gridlocked federal level? And then in the state legislatures, it's kind of a disaster. So it's like, what do we do to fix our domestic issues or should we just focus on international issues for the next like two years and wait for another round to like see if we can fix it? Uh, those are good questions. I mean, I don't know. Do you want me to try and address that as a question? <laughs> or is this? A... <laughs> I mean, the, the short sure. of it. Yeah, go ahead, please. Oh, yeah, sure. I was like, I don't know. What, what, what were you thinking? I don't know. No, I, I mean, look, these are key questions of strategy. Like, where do you go from here? What can you actually achieve? I think you know, part of what's dismaying, thrilling, depending on what side of this you're on, is that the Senate is still up for grabs. I, I, you know, Alicia is very much right. I, I put my Stacey Abrams back up. Um, you know, and I do have family in Atlanta and Georgia and uh, who are right to celebrate the victory that they are bringing in that state and the possibility of two Senate seats. Uh, including Raphael Warnock, who is the 
pastor at the Ebenezer Baptist Church, Martin Luther King's church. So you've got this this young white guy, John Ossoff, running should uh, running in alliance with uh, a black uh, reverend, who, you know, who holds a very symbolically significant uh, position in that city. Um, those two seats are up for grabs. So there's the the question of this: the the election is not over; it is ongoing. You know, as nauseating as that may be for some of you. Um, but then beyond that, there's also a lot that the pr- a president can do beyond um, just simply trying to sign legislation, particularly uh, Trump uh, really governed through um, executive orders. And that can happen as well. And, and one of the things that, that becomes interesting is that Trump did indeed break a lot of the norms in terms of how governing works. Uh, to get things through that were radically undemocratic or that, you know, you would ordinarily need a legislature for or senatorial confirmation. And, you know, what what Trump broke, Biden can exploit. So if the Senate doesn't want to seat his cabinet positions, fuck it. Just put people in there as temporary appointments and let them serve. If that process is broken down, that process is broken down. No need to be broken by it. Um, so I think there there's things that can be done. I think, you know, we saw Biden give a, a a speech this afternoon, this morning, about his new coronavirus uh, task force that is filled with scientists and epidemiologists and experts in public health, and to just have the you know the the this, the president elect go, you know, wear a mask. And I, I think he actually said this like, and I'm a fierce critic of Biden. I mean, like this is this was my guide to Joe Biden. This is the book that came out during the primaries, Joe Biden, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. I've read it cover to cover. I can tell you all the worst things you want to know about this man. Um, but at the same time, like he he said, basically, he's like, so we need you to wear a mask because we're not trying to take anything from you individually. We're trying to give something to everyone. So if you put a mask on, we can get on airplanes. If you put a mask on, we can go to school. If you put a mask on, we can open restaurants and service. (laughs) We can go back to normal. If you, you know, I mean, so like that simple messaging, right. That I think will start to bring about a, 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 a substantive difference, but all that remains to be seen. But I, I, last thing I'll say before, and we'll continue with the comments is that Biden gets no honeymoon. Right. In 2008, Obama got a big honeymoon. Everyone was like, oh, so besotted with this victory and what a great guy. And he's going to figure it out. And we all kind of went to sleep. We we went back, you know, we went back to to brunch. Right. As I think the metaphor is that does not happen this time. No honeymoon with Joe Biden. We're on his ass from the jump, as in like right now. All right. Um, Emerson. Uh, Hi. Um, So one thing that I'm really excited about that hasn't been mentioned yet, and I think could answer some people's questions maybe, um, is his climate uh, reform policies that he's planning on implementing. Um, I heard a lot about that yesterday. Um, I was reading like an LA Times article that uh, talks about things that he can do, even if he doesn't get a Democratic Senate, for example, like rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement and um, uh, reinstating some of Obama's policies that um, Trump took away. Um, and I think that's really important um, to, uh, yeah, that's like, I think something that could be implemented right away. Um, mm-hmm. And like something, yeah, um, obviously the coronavirus too is really important and police reform and all those things. Um, and another thing, as you were saying, that I think is really important is to keep pushing. Um, you know, I think on Saturday, everyone was, really happy and dancing in the streets and everything, which is great. 
but um, people need to continue um, to push this administration um, to do what they want it to. Uh, and I agree, there shouldn't be a honeymoon period that we should go um, straight to that. And I've seen a lot of people posting things saying that. Um, so that's pretty encouraging. And I hope that momentum continues and that we don't just sit back and relax, like that we continue to um, push for what we want. Outstanding, thank you for that. Um, let's go to Dominic. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, uh, thanks for thanks for picking up on me. Um, I wanted to say Rice uh, had a had a good question. I think he kind of addressed it. But like, I think that that at this point, it's going to rely. This presidency is going to rely on fierce unilateral action, regardless of what the Senate does. Um, you need to keep an eye out on all the key players. Who, particularly, who's going to be the uh, U.S. Secretary of Tre- of the Treasury is going to have a gigantic impact on what's going to happen here in the next while you have to keep an eye on the financing arm and like what, like we can't, in my opinion, we just can't go back to like Obama economics. Um, at this point, you can't have Goldman Sachs in that position, um, especially with the coronavirus issues and everything else. So this is going to be like the key, this, that is the probably the most crucial decision in my opinion that, uh, President Biden's going to have to put like he he just can't go back to the other form of economics. There has to be a path forward. And that does include some sort of industrial policy that goes towards climate change and a new energy sector and all these other things that we're talking about. You cannot go back to these old methods. Um, Anyways, that's my opinion. No, I like I appreciate that. I am hopeful for the same thing. Thank you. Um, Let's go to uh, Kritika. Yeah, just we're having trouble with your audio here. Hang on a sec. We'll come right back to you. Okay, you you get you get next. All right, um, go ahead. I mean, I would say that the like biggest result for me is something that. Whoop. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, the biggest result for me is something that hasn't been reported on as much. It's been, you know, one, the fact that the Democrats haven't done great with the state houses. So redistricting is not going to look great over the course of the next, you know, decade. Um, and then two, the fact that Democrats have been unrepentant. You know, I saw Jim Clyburn said that he doesn't think Mitch McConnell would stop um, a black woman being appointed to the Supreme Court. And it was just mind boggling how out of touch that was. You're reading all these articles about how Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell might be able to set aside differences and get things passed. Um, and I just think that's, you know, a bit daft. So my big concern is the Democratic establishment won't learn as they didn't after 2016, make the same mistakes. They've inherited a massive mess. So in 2024, you get some Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton type, maybe Tucker Carlson, maybe Nikki Haley, who takes all of these norms that have been destroyed and actually becomes a despot and authoritarian um, and does it in a massive landslide because I think Democrats are bleeding votes. And um, there's a great article in The Atlantic. I think it's still on the front page that goes over. Um, a lot of this kind of nightmare scenarios. Um, it's very pessimistic. It's very cynical. But I do think, you know, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. So um, that should probably be the guiding star moving forward. All of those are legit concerns. All right, let's go back to uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's okay. great. Great, great. Um, so one of the things that I've just been thinking is being on social media this weekend, I feel like there's so much division on the left and among people who 
are kind of like in some ways disappointed with Biden. And I guess it's concerning to me because in this class, we've been talking about the unity and like the social movements that we need to hold Biden accountable and to make real change. So I guess something that's just been concerning to me is the division among people who want the same results in the end, but the means to get there. And I'm really concerned that if we're not able to get past those divisions, that our social movements won't be effective going forward. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that is a, I mean, that's always a concern. That is a, it's a good, but the, we have in this election, a certain extent of examples of what, what does happen when people come together to wage an anti-fascist crusade. Uh, we have examples, positive examples before us. Um, so, and that, if anything, like what we have out of this election is a good example of what working together actually can look like. So, but I agree with you. That is, that is always, that's always a concern. Um, just, I mean, in, even in time without, not in times of duress, even when you're not directly, you know, existentially under attack, um, those kinds of are, are key issues, but thank you. I appreciate the, those comments. That's really uh, very uh, on point. Let's, um, let's go to, to Brian here. Um, obviously I'm happy that Biden was elected, but a couple of thoughts is that first kind of echoing with Amin that there's also a little bit of disappointment that comes with it, that Democrats didn't take the Senate and that they lost ground in the house and in state legislatures. It just kind of shows that there is a fundamental issue with democratic campaigning across the country and that their messages weren't resonating with a lot of the counties that they thought that they would be competitive in. And so there's kind of a fundamental reckoning that needs to happen within the Democratic Party moving forward. And a lot of this, like a lot of those results also show that this is like, no matter like who ended up winning, that there's a large part of this country that's still like Trump country, no matter what. And that these ideas still resonate with a lot of the American people. Like he still got 70 million votes. And then the last concern is that Biden ended up ahead of candidates, like in the, in the Senate and in the House. And so I'm just like concerned of what's going to happen in 2022 and 2024 when there's been two years of gridlock in the legislature and there's no like not Donald Trump to run. You can't run against like uh, a Donald Trump and Joe Biden is then the incumbent who hasn't done as much in the past couple of years. I mean, all of those are, that's all of that is true. Um, those concerns are legit. Uh, this is also what I'm talking about the, you know, the need to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory moment as well. Um, because I, I think we don't, we don't know what's going to happen in two years or in four years. Like all of this is sort of speculative. So the concerns are real. The disillusionment uh, needs to, to wait. And let me just say one thing that I think is, is significant. Okay. What we saw happen on Saturday has no legal authority behind it, right? The AP, NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN, Fox, and MSNBC all decided that Joe Biden had won Pennsylvania, that he's the president of the elect, elect of the United States, and that he got to go out on that stage in Delaware and give the big speech in which all of us watch and then the fireworks and so on and so on, and it's done. None of that is written in the constitution. None of that has any legal bearing at all. It is spectacle and norms as shaped by our political media apparatus. Okay. So the fact that everyone went out on Saturday and spontaneously went 
dancing in the streets that like people were partying and singing and dancing in the streets. I mean, I went down to, to Oakland, to the, to Lake Merritt, and there were just thousands of people out there just milling around, just recklessly being happy. Okay. And that party, the celebration we won and we're going to act like it is an, an essential political component of this. All of the footage of people singing and dancing in Atlanta and especially in Philly. Oh, my God. Gritty won the presidency for uh, the people of the United States. Like Philly, like the deep, deep Philly won this election. Detroit won this election. Atlanta won this election. Milwaukee won this election. The Navajo uh, reservation in North, Northeastern Arizona won this election. Black and brown people in Arizona and Nevada won this election. So act like it, act like it, you know, because like none of that has any legal, like the, the partying that is what is necessary. The celebration is what is necessary to convince the world that this is in fact over, that the concession speech should have come a long time ago, um, all of those kinds of things. So we are in this kind of precarious situation and we, we need to actually act like, or like Biden supporters and others need to act like they won because they did, right? We did, at least according to the media, according to the spectacle that is allowed, the sort of ceremony of the speech in which he brings all of his family out there and gives this this kind of speech and all that sort of stuff. So there's, you know, all of those things about certifying the election in the, uh, the House of Representatives and all of those, that still has to happen. And we need to make sure that, that we pay attention to that. But the inevitability of victory, what that victory looks like, Who's responsible for claiming that victory? This is all part of the play. So this is all part of the play. This is why it's actually important to celebrate the victory and not just sit here and be like, oh my God, it's all going to go to shit in two years. You're not wrong. And there will be time to reckon with how bad things are going to go in two years. (laughs) And I'm with you. As soon as Biden gets in there and starts instituting austerity, he's done. If he goes in there and starts imposing austerity on all of us, if the Dems go in there and he strikes a deal with McConnell to start slashing the budget and and cutting back the budget and we end up with austerity, you're right. He's going to lose. Has that happened yet? No. So let's not like, again, go looking for defeatism. Like it is your obligation to act like you won. That is politically important. Okay, and I know the dancing in the streets time is over, but like, you know, they may be back. (laughs) There may be be more reasons and occasions for that. All right, I'm going to shut back up uh, and we'll go to someone else we haven't heard from, which is uh, Nicholas. Hi, uh, my question is like, how likely is it that the next Trump is also has the last name Trump, like for 2024, like an Ivanka run or Donald Trump Jr. or God forbid, Eric, but. No, I, I'm like, I, if I put my prognosticator hat on, I think the Trump family's toast. I think as soon as Trump gets out of office, he is going to be just assaulted with lawsuits on every side. All of the uh, accusations and credible claims of sexual assault against him will find their way into court. And he's going to have to defend himself uh, for 29 
uh, viable accusations of rape and sexual assault. All of a sudden, that is going to come crashing down on his head. Uh, the multiple, multiple tax fraud, real estate fraud, insurance fraud cases uh, are going to come crashing down on his head. Um, not only that, but the brand is toxic. The Trump brand is officially toxic. He's been losing money on a lot of his properties around the world. Um, and not just that, he's going to lose the lease on his Washington hotel. Because if Trump's not in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the hotel down the way is not going to be filled with Saudi royalty and Emirates and others who are basically using that hotel, um, let alone Mar-a-Lago and others, to bribe the president uh, to do what in the, the ruthless, you know, a violation of the not just the Hatch Act, but the Emoluments Clause. I think Trump is in a heap of trouble, legal, financial, a criminal. I think he's in a heap of trouble. And I think um, nothing, you know, the fact that he failed, that he lost, uh, that's bad for the brand. Like Trump's brand is, I, you know, I'm going to win, win, win. You're going to be so sick of winning. You're going to be tired of the winning. Well, he just got, he just lost lost. How does he deal with that? Probably not well. I, I, so I, I don't, you know, I, I mean, it may be that Trump somehow finds a way to survive this. Um, but I don't see it. I think he's in a heap of trouble and he knows it. And that's why he's refusing to quit at this point. Do you want to, Nicholas, what do you, what do you think of that? Do you buy that or am I being optimistic? I just, I, I see a really like specific brand of um trump supporter like back home of like people that it's just all about trump it's like the, that last name is why they went out and voted for him and like took time out of their day and i'm just wondering how many of like those kinds of people are going to be able to get motivated for some of the names that somebody else was throwing out there like tom cotton and stuff like it's not the same like umph as trump has no, that's a really good point. And one of the things that we found, you find historically with, particularly in democracies with very charismatic figures, is that when they leave power, it's often very difficult for them to transfer that charisma to subsequent to their inheritors. So the, the, the subsequent inheritors of Castro and Hugo Chavez have not really been able to sort of wield that charisma. Hillary Clinton was not able to wield Barack Obama's charisma. Um, Biden... A little bit like I think Obama made it made a difference in this election. Um, but I, the question is whether or not when if Trump drops out of the Republic, out of Republican politics and indeed, if Republican politicians are like, OK, Don, it's time to go. He will see that as a betrayal. He's not going to come back and try and help them. So on and so on. The guy can hold a grudge like with world record skill. And so there, there's a sense in which. um if Trump does fall out of the public eye, there's also stories that he's just binging on cheeseburgers right now. So there's, there's a whole other, you know, like what's, what's going on. And this is clearly the worst day in Donald Trump's life so far. Um, and so you don't know what that's going to do, but the, whether or not Trump's charisma can translate to other politicians, let alone his own D deeply weird progeny uh, remains to be uh, seen. I'm highly skeptical of that, but we, do, we don't know. These, these, are, these are all very good questions. Um, let's go to, um, who, who have we got here? Um, let's, uh, uh, Ritika, go ahead. Yeah, I think that something that I've been thinking a lot about is also the propositions and especially Proposition 22 and how that actually ended up passing. Um, I think it was just kind of 
ter- I mean, we all know that big money runs our politics, but like just the extent to which, you know, something like that can pass is just, I don't know, it, it's terrifying to me. It sets a precedent that you can escape you can escape what the state has mandated for you to do through spending. Like, I don't know how much money they spent, but the most amount in American history on a singular proposition. Um, Do you possibly think that maybe having a new, having a new presidency, such as having Joe Biden as president would reduce the impact of big money in politics or is how do we go about like minimizing this and giving more voice to the people uh these are good questions i i think that, that you know there's a lot of diff- there's sort of policy tweaks that could we could imagine that are going to be very difficult given the current political setup you know uh, you know uh, abolishing the the Citizens United case, the sort of you know creating a, a a more coherent democracy, like a you know a simple thing like national popular vote for the presidency, <laughs> like really basic things like that. Um, as for Prop Twenty Two, I I I on the one hand, you know, money never sleeps, right? You spend two hundred million dollars on a proposition, and you frame it in this really durable um, and durable way, and you overwhelm the airwaves with that message. It's going to be really hard to fight. Um, the The fight on Prop Twenty Two goes to the courts. You know, is it is it legal? What they did, you know, because this is you know one of the reasons why I hate the proposition space is that you spend hundreds of millions of dollars, you get really invested in these big fights, something passes or doesn't pass, and then it just gets thrown out in the courts because it's unconstitutional. So why? Why did we do this? Like, why? This is not helping anyone. I mean, and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. It depends on which side you're on, right? I mean, I, I remember, you know, in 2008, the, the, the California put Obama over the top and passed a, ma- a ban on gay marriage on the same day. Talk about mixed emotions, right? Um, but of course, Prop 8 then got thrown out in the courts. And so, you know, so now what? You know, so a lot of this stuff is up for grabs. The other thing I would say is that the propositions and the defeat of the propositions, 16, 15 and 16, and a number of others, really does show that there's a tremendous amount of work to do here in California, that nobody really gets to say, oh, well, California is a liberal state. We live in a bubble. Like, fuck you in your bubble, okay? Like, nobody lives in a bubble. Bubbles are fragile, they are precious they, and they break very easily. Now, in my experience, people who live in communities that we think of as bubbles, like Berkeley, Berkeley's bubble is not a bubble. It's actually very durable. We live in a fortified village, not in a bubble, right? No, but we don't have to keep pumping air into it. We build, you know, we, we defend and protect ourselves and each other, right? Ideologically, politically, in, in you look at the ballot measures, all the tax increases that Berkeley could possibly have put on the ballot passed, right? And so that we can pay for schools and firefighters and all of these kinds of things. Now, outside of our village, like, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, right? And so California is not the liberal state that people want to think it is. It is a democratic state. It is, a, you know, as, uh, you know, as Jose just said, right? It is a neoliberal state. You are right. 
And so there's a lot of work that, that, that remains there to be done. But you're right. The propositions, you know, and this is, again, why celebrating the victories that we did get are necessary because the defeats are real, too. And there's a lot of work to be done there. And none of us can just survive on the misery that um, if, if all we do is look at our defeats. All right. Let me go to um, uh, uh, Ankil. Hey, yeah. Um, so I also want to talk about the propositions a little. So I've had a lot of conversations about like whether Californians should have the right to vote on propositions just because from what I've seen, a lot of Californians aren't super educated about what the propositions themselves are. And I feel like unless you really read into what each proposition is, you don't have a really good understanding of what they are. And in addition to like the misinformation that spreads so easily, especially with like Prop 22. So I was wondering if you had like, a take on this on whether propositions should be like such a big part of California law. Yeah. I mean, my, my two cents, uh, my dog off my lap, my two cents is no, I hate the propositions. This is what we have representative democracy for have the guts pass the laws, right? We elect representatives. There's this whole shiny building in Sacramento where they write and pass the laws and a governor to sign them, do your jobs, stop, offshore you know offloading that work onto the citizenry in part because the citizens it, it does take a tremendous amount of time and energy to figure out who and what to vote for but more than that it just costs hundreds of millions of dollars to fight defensive actions against stupid things that one billionaire hired an army of people to stand outside of Whole Foods and sign on to. That's not democracy. That's that's pay to play politics. And I, I don't I, I don't like it. Um, you know, I, I think like it's distracting. It's expensive. Uh, overwhelmingly does more harm than good. Um, you know, and I, I think on balance, overwhelmingly, it does more harm than good. Um, but then, you know, but then you look in other places and I mean, I, this is, you know, has been stated before, but you want to look at the, who the, who the great winner of the 2020 election cycle was drugs, drugs, won the war on drugs. It's official. The war on drugs is over and the drugs won. Okay. They drugs won everywhere that marijuana legalization was on the ballot. It won. You can like they decriminalized all drugs in um, or under a certain threshold in um, in Oregon over and over and over again. Like, you know, drugs won the war on drugs. It's over. The war on drugs is over. The drugs won. But that's the whole other story. Right. I mean, so that's you know, there's your positive versions. But I, I don't like the ballot measure process or at, at all. I think, you know, we have a representative democracy. Uh, direct democracy does not work in this regard because what what do you get? You don't really get direct democracy. You get Lyft and Uber just buying themselves a law, and and how is that? How does that help anyone? Does it does what do you what do you it, you care to respond to that? Yeah. Um. So my take on it is kind of similar, but I also feel like that's the same thing with any election, right? You have millions, hundreds of millions being spent on presidential elections, state elections. So how is that any different than just having laws that are voted upon? And in addition to that, you are kind of being able to progress faster because our democracy is based on a system that's supposed to be slow to progress just so it doesn't get too radical. So I feel like propositions are a good way to combat that if you really do want like fast progress, such as like with war and with drugs or like with 
gay marriage and stuff like that. I, I mean, that, I think that's a well-made point. Unfortunately, history bears the opposite out. If you really want to undo the progress made by the civil rights movement, propositions are your method. You want to undo uh, laws passed by state legislatures that ban discrimination in the sale of housing or education, propositions do that for you. So by and large, in the case of California, propositions have done more to undo uh, civil rights legislation and progress than they have to advance it. I mean, th- take Prop 8, right? Proposition 8 that banned gay marriage. There there was. Gavin Newsom, when he was mayor of San Francisco, was like, you know what? Gay marriage is legal in California. We're going to start holding weddings in City Hall today. <laughs> and they wrote up a legal order and they started marrying people, right? Um, really quite, and then the, you know, a bunch of people put together a ballot measure to undo this um, and so on. And you know the rest of the story. So there's, that in my experience, ballot measures don't necessarily make things faster. They make things really clunky and clumsy because now you have the, the state constitution just fills up with these this kind of arbitrary language around ballot measures that, that create all kinds of budgetary problems that hamper uh, the ability of the legislature to actually work and things like that. So I think, you know, while we can point to, you know, pros and cons, like the negatives really very much overwhelm um, I think in, in my experience, but that, but, uh, you know, we, I, I, they, they're not going to, you know, my decision is not final on this, nor, nor does it bear on what the state continues to do. Um, all right, let's go to, to share. Hi. Uh, yeah. It's pronounced Char. Um, sure. I should get that right by now. No worry. Uh, yeah. So I just want to kind of go back to what you're saying about like victory and, celebration and how important that is because that's something that I've been really um thinking about a lot with the election and how um quick we are on the left like far left side to really uh yeah downplay like how important that is and and to just kind of doomsday ourselves I feel like it's like a really big gen z thing maybe to just doomsday ourselves over and over again about things that are going to happen or what's happening now and all these things that are and have been happening for so long. Um, and yeah, I'm just like, I am very irritated by it because I just, it's bringing back kind of what Zachary Norris said when he was here and about how we just ditch things too, like we ditch terminology and language too fast on the left. And we all know what it's really supposed to mean and like what we like need to be doing. Uh, but yet there's also this portion that is just uh, like so, I guess, inaccessibly uh, pe- or not like pessimistic because like that is what the deal is. But it's just it's like, how are we going to get anybody to join this fight if we're over here being like, well, this one wasn't even really a win and no wins are wins because the system sucks. And uh, yeah, I just wonder like how we could have a more um, productive like, and uh, a lens that would draw people in um, rather than, like, being so uh, sad. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, more, 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 more dogs on the Zoom call. That's what, that's my, that's my most immediate suggestion for how do we achieve this. <laughs> yeah, there you go. More, more dogs on Zedaria. All right. <laughs> See? Come on now. 
<laughs> Doesn't everybody feel better? All right, um, Samantha, go ahead. <laughs> Hi, um, well, not to doomsday uh, or to perpetuate the doomsday stereotype, but uh, I, I was reading up yesterday on the legacy of, uh, of Bush, of the Bush administration. And I, I was really surprised to see that there was, I think there was like a 76% uh, approval rating after the fact by many people. And I assume it has to do a lot with patriotism and, and whatnot, but I am curious to hear your thoughts as to what uh, the rewritten legacy of Trumpism could be given this precedent that I'm seeing with the atrocities and all of this sort of gunky, nasty parts of our presidents being washed away because nowadays they paint or they build houses and, and stuff like that? Well, uh, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, uh, the post-presidency, you know, the, uh, it often varies. Um, you know, I think of someone like Jimmy Carter who easily achieved more after he left the White House than he did in his four years in office and is a model, um, citizen, global citizen, activist, et cetera. Um, you know, someone like, you know, uh, George W. Bush. Yes. He, he's a painter now and has been restored. Now I, I will say this and let this be controversial and just run away. Um, I will go to the mat arguing that George W. Bush was a, a vastly worse president, more dangerous and damaging president than Donald Trump. Donald Trump was terrible, I think, but George W. Bush was absolutely a worse president. Um, and all you need to know is that, you know, the deaths of several million Iraqis, Afghanis, Yemenis, uh, Palestinians, Syrians, and others that all lie um, on, on his ledger. Um, in fact, the only thing I, good I would say about Trump is that he failed to get the United States embroiled in a foreign war, um, which is really the, what the work of what most presidents do. I, I, I think we're still living in the shadow of the uh, the global war on terrorism. And so in that sense, uh, it, it causes me physical pain to see George W. Bush sort of restored to some position of decorum. Um, he was an exceptionally dangerous president, uh, maybe the most dangerous president uh, we've ever had. Um, I, I would say also that, that Trump, having failed to win a second term, um, will then further be spared um, uh, his capacity to achieve the... Uh, assessment of the worst president in U.S. history. Um, what happens to Trump from here on in? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would pay attention, folks, because on the one hand, I gave you the version in which like he's embroiled in endless lawsuits and is prosecuted and so on and so on. I think the other version of what could happen to Donald Trump is basically what happened to Game of Thrones. Um, the ending was so bad so obviously appallingly bad that all of us instantly forgot about the entire show, right? Who today thinks of Game of Thrones? The ending was so stupid that, that, that none of us will go back and admit to even like having liked it in the first place. And we know that that's a lie, right? So there's a, there's a, the amnesia runs heavy, a deep strain of amnesia uh, runs very deep in the American political psyche. And our our ability to just simply forget 
that Trump was ever president and that his that Jared Kushner had every job in the West Wing all at once uh, and that, you know, Betsy DeVos was the secretary of education and that, you know, that Ben Carson, who now has coronavirus, was the secretary of health and human service. Like, I mean, it, like or housing, excuse me, like we're the very real possibility. All of us will just simply forget that this ever happened is quite strong. I mean, we're doing it with W right now. Like, you, you know, so you see what I mean? Like, I, I, so I don't know. I mean, there's no sense in which, um, I do think that Trump will very much look to continue to be a damaging force. Um, but it, it, de- it depends. I mean, I think his brand name has been rather severely damaged, you know, by this. So I, I don't know that that's ever going to get necessarily, uh, explicitly restored. So I don't know, Samantha, what do you, what do you think? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know that I like either prospect, uh, the <laughs> thought, <laughs> the thought of him being, uh, recuperated is, uh, painful. The idea of him being forgotten, I think is even more dangerous. I don't think that forgetting does any good to us, especially given, uh, how Bush is being forgotten or remembered, restored in a sense. But, um, I, I asked the question because I have been watching a lot more TV than I have before. And I turned on MSNBC to see them uh, chatting about how um, it's, it's time to move forward. And, 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 you know, this is something they, they were talking about it. Like it was in the past, like we aren't still in, in his presidency. Like he isn't still here. And it was so, It was so disappointing and and predictable, and I hated it. <laughs> I feel that. I mean, part of it is that we are, this is a time of transition, right? Uh, literally, in the sense that the, 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 the current administration needs to move out, the incoming administration needs to move in. Uh, and so this, the kind of transi- transition is, is the sort of space we're in. And a lot of that is this kind of language about moving forward and so on. And what that looks like is, is going to be complicated in part because Trump has so many, so fiercely devoted um, followers, right? Um, and not, and, and by this, I'm, I'm not just talking about, you know, his voters, which are this enormous block. I mean, 70 million plus people voted for this man. And that that that's so we are in a very sort of delicate circumstance. Right. And and I think like on the one hand, sort of celebration is necessary, politically necessary. On the other right, the, the work of to, w- reconciliation to one degree or another uh, is absolutely necessary, unless, of course, you know, you think a civil war is somehow going to be useful, <laughs> you know, politically efficacious, uh, let alone be winnable, which I, you know, I don't even want to entertain those sorts of thoughts. So in, in a sense, like what I do believe is that something akin to a truth and reconciliation commission should, it would be quite useful and necessary, that we do need to actually investigate the criminal activities of the Trump administration and find some way to actually create justice out of those moments. Um, one of the great political catastrophes, I'll give you two of the, the sort of great political catastrophes of recent history, is on the first in 1974, when Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. After the Watergate scandal, Nixon resigns. Gerald Ford becomes the president, the only unelected president in U.S. history. Right. He replaced uh, Spiro Agnew, who was the 
the the uh, Nixon's elected vice president in the 72 election. Agnew quits because of financial chicanery. Uh, and then uh, Gerald Ford, congressman from Michigan, who was on the Warren Commission, et cetera, ends up uh, as the vice president. Nixon resigns. Gerald Ford becomes president and then pardons Richard Nixon. And that gesture of pardoning, because he, he believed that the country did not want to have to go through the process of trying Richard Nixon for his crimes. Well, Ford was wrong. Not only did it cost him his presidency, but it, it generated enormous hostility to the Republican Party uh, and to the political apparatus as a whole of Americans who wanted to see justice done after the crimes of Watergate. I think that that's a similar situation that we find ourselves in now. The other is Barack Obama in 2008, who refused to prosecute any of the people responsible for the 2008 financial catastrophe. So Bear Stearns and, you know, um, like all of the various um, financial firms, uh, Dick Fold and all of these other people that should have been prosecuted uh, for destroying the global economy in 2008 were not. Because the Obama people were like, oh, no, no, we're, we just want to fix this and move on. Let's we'll get to the work of repair. Let's not think about who caused this. No, we actually seriously need to think about the people who caused this. We need to investigate these crimes. We need to, to prosecute the people who are responsible for this. And he never did any of those things. And so I think that that caused real damage to the Obama administration and let alone to the sense of, justice, right, um, you know, the power of the financial uh, industry and the like. And so I think that, that this is a, a, a kind of um, a moment in which I think we do need to both move forward. We need to transition, but we need to hold these Trump people accountable, legally, morally, historically, et cetera. They need to be held accountable. We need a full reckoning of their crimes uh, committed in their own self-interest against the, 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 the broader concerns of the American people. Um, just as a way of like concluding here, I want to offer you something, um, briefly that I, uh, let me put this up. Uh, yeah, here you go. Okay. So this is my, uh, non-existent financial, uh, final exam question for all of you. I just want you to think about this. Uh, you don't have a final exam, but if it, if you did, this is what it would look like. Okay. So based upon the assigned readings by Ian Haney Lopez, Kianga Yamada Taylor, uh, Carol Anderson, uh, um, um, uh, Astra Taylor, uh, Saru Jayaraman and others, um, develop a political analysis of the following chart. Okay. So this, this, you know, everybody's got their favorite memes. Um, this is, uh, this is what it, you know, how the electoral map would look if only right people of color voted and then the, the big asterisks down at the bottom. The reason I didn't break down the POC vote into various groups by gender, ethnicity, or educational level is that no matter how I broke it down, it was always 100% blue. Okay, so this is every, if, if only Hispanics voted, if only black people voted, if only Asians voted, if only natives voted, if only if mixed race people, it all works the same, right? And then you get women as a category, Biden wins. If you If men vote, right, Trump wins. If white people vote, Trump wins. If white women vote, only vote, Trump wins. If college-educated whites, Trump wins. If non-college-educated whites, uh, Trump wins. And if white men exclusively, with a, so if it's 1787 and the only people allowed to vote are, are white men, this is what the Electoral College looks like, okay? So I flatter myself to believe that this class and the readings and the assignments to this point 
have sufficiently equipped all of you to understand what is at stake in this chart. So this is my ad hoc, non-binding, um, free-for-all version of what a final exam question might look like. What Explain this chart to us uh, in, in a five-paragraph essay. I think you can do it. If, if this class has achieved anything or has provided anything to all of you, I think the opportunity for you to actually um, see this uh, and read this chart with some kind of clarity about, you know, and just it was a way of ending, which is to say that anytime you're talking, thinking, and acting about U.S. politics and you're not putting race at the center of that story, you are doing it wrong. All right. Thanks, everybody.